Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 58 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. This week, we get to enter into the menagerie of Leo Tolstoy's novel War in Peace, with chapters 17 and 18 of part 2, where we see here the Russian-Austrian army finally is making its stand against the French, who have fired the first shot. And we will see how Tolstoy masterfully convinces all of us that there is hope for this David to be able to conquer the French Goliath army. Let us begin. Chapter 17 Mounting his horse again, Prince Andrew lingered with the battery, looking at the puff from the gun that had sent the ball. His eyes ran rapidly over the wide space, but he only saw that the hitherto motionless masses of the French now swayed, and that there really was a battery to their left. The smoke above it had not yet dispersed. Two mounted Frenchmen, probably adjutants, were galloping up the hill. A small but distinctly visible enemy column was moving down the hill, probably to strengthen the front line. The smoke of the first shot had not yet dispersed before another puff appeared, followed by a report. The battle had begun. Prince Andrew turned his horse and galloped back to Grunth to find Prince Bagration. He heard the cannonade behind him growing louder and more frequent. Evidently, our guns had begun to reply. From the bottom of the slope, where the parleys had taken place, came the report of musketry. Lemoreux had just arrived at a gallop with Bonaparte's stern letter, and Murat, humiliated and anxious to expiate his fault, had at once moved his forces to attack the center and outflank both the Russian wings, hoping before evening and before the arrival of the emperor to crush the contemptible detachment that stood before him. It is begun. Here it is, thought Prince Andrew, feeling the blood rush to his heart. But where and how will my Toulon present itself? Passing between the companies that had been eating porridge and drinking vodka a quarter of an hour before, he saw everywhere the same rapid movement of soldiers forming ranks and getting their muskets ready, and on all their faces he recognized the same eagerness that filled his heart. It is begun. Here it is, dreadful but enjoyable was what the face of each soldier and each officer seemed to say. Before he had reached the embankments that were being thrown up, he saw, in the light of the dull autumn evening, mounted men coming toward him. The foremost, wearing a cussock cloak and lambskin cap and riding a white horse, was Prince Bagration. Prince Andrew stopped, waiting for him to come up. Prince Bagration reined in his horse, and recognizing Prince Andrew, nodded to him. He still looked ahead while Prince Andrew told him what he had seen. The feeling, it has begun, 
Here it is, was seen even on Prince Bagration's hard brown face with its half-closed, dull, sleepy eyes. Prince Andrew gazed with anxious curiosity at that impassive face and wished he could tell what, if anything, this man was thinking and feeling at that moment. Is there anything at all behind that impassive face? Prince Andrew asked himself as he looked. Prince Bagration bent his head in sign of agreement with what Prince Andrew told him and said, Very good, in a tone that seemed to imply that everything that took place and was reported to him was exactly what he had foreseen. Prince Andrew, out of breath with his rapid ride, spoke quickly. Prince Bagration, uttering his words with an oriental accent, spoke particularly slowly as if to impress the fact that there was no need to hurry. However, he put his horse to a trot in the direction of Tushin's battery. Prince Andrew followed with the suite. Behind Prince Bagration rode an officer of the suite, the prince's personal adjutant, Zerkov, an orderly officer, the staff officer on duty, riding a fine bobtailed horse and a civilian, an accountant who had asked permission to be present at the battle out of curiosity. The accountant, a stout, full-faced man, looked round him with a naive smile of satisfaction and presented a strange appearance among the hussars, cussocks and adjutants, in his cam-leg coat, and he jolted on his horse with a convoy officer's saddle. He wants to see a battle, said Zerkov to Bolkonsky, pointing to the accountant, but he feels a pain in the pit of his stomach already. Oh, leave off, said the accountant, with a beaming but rather cunning smile, as if flattered at being made the subject of Zerkov's joke and purposefully trying to appear stupider than he really was. It is very strange, mon monsieur prince, said the staff officer. He remembered that in French there is some mm, peculiar way of addressing a prince, but could not quite get it right. By this time, they were all approaching Tushin's battery, and a ball struck the ground in front of them. What's that that has fallen? asked the accountant with a naive smile. A French pancake answered Zerkov. So that's what they hit with, asked the accountant. How awful. He seemed to swell with satisfaction. He had hardly finished speaking when they again heard an unexpectedly violent whistling which suddenly ended with a thud into something soft. And a cussock riding a little to their right and behind the accountant crashed to earth with his horse. Zerkov and the staff officer bent over their saddles and turned their horses away. The accountant stopped, facing the cussock, and examined him with attentive curiosity. The cussock was dead, but the horse still struggled. Prince Bagration screwed up his eyes, looking round and seeing the cause of the confusion turned away with indifference, as if to say, Is it worth while noticing trifles? 
He reined in his horse with the care of a skillful rider and, slightly bending over, disengaged his saber, which had caught in his cloak. It was an old-fashioned saber, of a kind no longer in general use. Prince Andrew remembered the story of Suvorov giving his saber to Bagration in Italy, and the recollection was particularly pleasant at that moment. They had reached the battery at which Prince Andrew had been when he examined the battlefield. "'Whose company?' asked Prince Bagration of an artilleryman standing by the ammunition wagon. He asked, "'Whose company?' But he really meant, "'Are you frightened here?' And the artilleryman understood him. "'Captain Tushin's your excellency,' shouted the red-haired, freckled gunner in a merry voice, standing to attention. "'Yes, yes.' muttered Bagration, as if considering something, and he rode past the limbers to the farthest cannon. As he approached, a ringing shot issued from it, deafening him in his suite, and in the smoke that suddenly surrounded the gun, they could see the gunners, who had seized it, straining to roll it quickly back to its former position. A huge, broad-shouldered gunner, number one, holding a mop, his legs far apart, sprang to the wheel, while number two, with a trembling hand, placed a charge in the cannon's mouth. The short, round-shouldered Captain Tushin, stumbling over the tail of the gun carriage, moved forward and, not noticing the general, looked out, shading his eyes with his small hand. Lift it two lines more and it will be just right! cried he in a feeble voice to which he tried to impart a dashing note ill-suited to his weak figure. Number two, he squeaked. Fire, Medvedev! Bagration called to him, and Tushin, raising three fingers to his cap with a bashful and awkward gesture, not at all like a military salute, but like a priest's benediction, approached the general. Though Tushin's guns had been intended to cannonade the valley, he was firing incendiary balls at the village of Schongraben, visible just opposite, in front of which large masses of French were advancing. No one had given Tushin orders where and at what to fire, but after consulting his sergeant major, Zakrchenko, for whom he had great respect, he had decided that it would be a good thing to set fire to the village. Very good said Bagration in reply to the officer's report, and began deliberately to examine the whole battlefield extended before him. The French had advanced nearest on our right. Below the height on which the Kiev regiment was stationed, in the hollow where the rivulet flowed, the soul-stirring rolling and crackling of musketry was heard, and much farther to the right, beyond the dragoons, the officer of the suite pointed out to Bagration a French column that was outflanking us. To the left horizon, bounded by the adjacent wood, Prince Bagration ordered two battalions from the center to be sent to reinforce the right flank. The officer of the suite ventured to remark to the prince that if these battalions went away, the guns would remain without support. Prince Bagration turned to the officer and with his dull eyes looked at him in silence. 
It seemed to Prince Andrew that the officer's remark was just, and that really no answer could be made to it. But at that moment, an adjutant galloped up with a message from the commander of the regiment in the hollow, and news that immense masses of the French were coming down upon him, and that his regiment was in disorder and was retreating upon the Kiev Grenadiers. Prince Bagration bowed his head in sign of assent and approval. He rode off at a walk to the right and sent an adjutant to the dragoons with orders to attack the French. But this adjutant returned half an hour later with the news that the commander of the dragoons had already retreated beyond the dip in the ground as a heavy fire had been opened on him and he was losing men uselessly and had so hastened to throw some sharpshooters into the wood. Very good, said Bagration. As he was leaving the battery, firing was heard on the left also, and as it was too far to the left flank for him to have time to go there himself, Prince Bagration sent Zerkov to tell the general in command, the one who had paraded his regiment before Kutuzov at Brunau, that he must retreat as quickly as possible behind the hollow in the rear, as the right flank would probably not be able to withstand the enemy's attack very long. About Tushin and the battalion that had been in support of his battery, all was forgotten. Prince Andrew listened attentively to Bagration's colloquies with the commanding officers and the orders he gave them, and, to his surprise, found that no orders were really given, but that Prince Bagration tried to make it appear that everything done by necessity, by accident, or by the will of subordinate commanders was done, if not by his direct command, at least in accord with his intentions. Prince Andrew noticed, however, that though what happened was due to chance and was independent of the commander's will, owing to the tact Bagration showed, his presence was very valuable. Officers who approached him with disturbed countenances became calm. Soldiers and officers greeted him gaily, grew more cheerful in his presence, and were evidently anxious to display their courage before him. End of chapter 17. Chapter 18. Prince Bagration, having reached the highest point of our right flank, began riding downhill to where the roll of musketry was heard, but where, on account of the spoke, nothing could be seen. The nearer they got to the hollow, the less they could see, but the more they felt the nearness of the actual battlefield. They began to meet wounded men. One, with a bleeding head and no cap, was being dragged along by two soldiers who supported him under the arms. There was a gurgle in his throat, and he was spitting blood. A bullet had evidently hit him in the throat or mouth. Another was walking sturdily by himself, but without his musket, groaning aloud and swinging his arm, which had just been hurt, while blood from it was streaming over his greatcoat as from a bottle. He had that moment been wounded, and his face showed fear rather than suffering. 
Crossing a road, they descended a steep incline and saw several men lying on the ground. They also met a crowd of soldiers, some of whom were unwounded. The soldiers were ascending the hill, breathing heavily, and despite the general's presence, were talking loudly and gesticulating. In front of them, rows of grey cloaks were already visible through the smoke, and an officer catching sight of Bagration rushed, shouting after the crowd of retreating soldiers, ordering them back. Bagration rode up to the ranks, along which shots crackled now here and now there, drowning the sound of voices and the shouts of command. The whole air reeked with smoke. The excited faces of the soldiers were blackened with it. Some were using their ramrods, others putting powder on the touchpans or taking charges from their pouches, while others were firing, though who they were firing at could not be seen for the smoke, which there was no wind to carry away. A pleasant humming and whistling of bullets were often heard. What is this? thought Prince Andrew, approaching the crowd of soldiers. It can't be an attack, for they are not moving. It can't be a square, for they are not drawn up for that. The commander of the regiment, a thin, feeble-looking old man with a pleasant smile, his eyelids drooping more than half over his old eyes, giving him a mild expression, rode up to Bagration and welcomed him as a host welcomes an honored guest. He reported that his regiment had been attacked by French cavalry, and that, though the attack had been repulsed, he had lost more than half his men. He said the attack had been repulsed, employing this military term to describe what had occurred to his regiment, but in reality, he did not himself know what had happened during that half hour to the troops entrusted to him, and could not say with certainty whether the attack had been repulsed or his regiment had been broken up. All he knew was that at the commencement of the action, balls and shells began flying all over his regiment and hitting men, and that afterwards someone had shouted, Cavalry! And our men had begun firing. They were still firing, not at the cavalry which had disappeared, but at French infantry, who had come into the hollow and were firing at our men. Prince Bagration bowed his head as a sign that this was exactly what he had desired and expected. Turning to his adjutant, he ordered him to bring down the two battalions of the 6th Chaucers whom they had just passed. Prince Andrew was struck by the changed expression on Prince Bagration's face at this moment. It expressed the concentrated and happy resolution you see on the face of a man who on a hot day takes a final run before plunging into the water. The dull, sleepy expression was no longer there, nor the affectation of profound thought. The round, steady, hawk's eyes looked before him eagerly and rather disdainfully, not resting on anything, although... His movements were still slow and measured. The commander of the regiment turned to Prince Bagration, entreating him to go back as it was too dangerous to remain where they were. Please, your excellency, 
for God's sake, he kept saying, glancing for support at an officer of the suite who turned away from him. There, you, you see? And he drew attention to the bullets whistling, singing, and hissing continually around them. He spoke in the tone of entreaty and reproach that a carpenter uses to a gentleman who has picked up an axe. We are used to it, but you, sir, will blister your hands. He spoke as if those bullets could not kill him, and his half-closed eyes gave still more persuasiveness to his words. The staff officer joined in the colonel's appeals, but Bagration did not reply. He only gave an order to cease firing and reform so as to give room for the two approaching battalions. While he was speaking, the curtain of smoke that had concealed the hollow, driven by a rising wind, began to move from right to left, as if drawn by an invisible hand, and the hill opposite, with the French moving about on it, opened out before them. All eyes fastened involuntarily on this French column advancing against them and winding down over the uneven ground. One could already see the soldiers' shaggy caps, distinguish the officers from the men, and see the standard flapping against its staff. They march splendidly, remarked someone in Bagration's suite. The head of the column had already descended into the hollow, the clash would take place on this side of it. The remains of our regiment, which had been in action, rapidly formed up and moved to the right. From behind it, dispersing the laggards, came two battalions of the 6th Chaucers in fine order. Before they had reached Regration, the weighty tread of the mass of men marching in step could be heard. On their left flank, nearest to Bagration, marched a company commander, a fine, round-faced man with a stupid and happy expression. The same man who had rushed out of the wattle shed. At that moment, he was clearly thinking of nothing but how dashing a fellow he would appear as he passed the commander. Strange thought. With the self-satisfaction of a man on a parade, he stepped lightly with his muscular legs as if sailing along, stretching himself to his full height without the smallest effort. His ease, contrasting with the heavy tread of the soldiers who were keeping step with him, he carried close to his leg a narrow, unsheathed sword, small, curved, and not like a real weapon and looked now at the superior officers and now back at the men without losing step. His whole powerful body turned flexibly. It was as if all the powers of his soul were concentrated on passing the commander in the best possible manner and feeling that he was doing it well. He was happy. Left, left, left he seemed to repeat to himself at each alternate step, and in time to this, with stern but varied faces, the wall of soldiers burdened with knapsacks and muskets marched in step, and each one of these hundreds of soldiers seemed to be repeating to himself at each alternate step, left, left, left. A fat major skirted a bush, puffing and falling out of step, 
a soldier who had fallen behind, his face showing alarm at his defection, ran at a trot, panting to catch up with his company. A cannonball, cleaving the air, flew over the heads of Bagration and his suite and fell into the column to the measure of left, left, close up, came the company's commander's voice in jaunty tones. The soldiers passed in a semicircle round something where the ball had fallen, and an old trooper on the flank, a non-commissioned officer who had stopped beside the dead men, ran to catch up his line and, falling into step with a hop, looked back angrily and through the ominous silence and the regular tramp of feet beating the ground in unison, one seemed to hear, Left! 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 Well done, lads, said Prince Bagration. Glad to do our best, your excellency, came a confused shout from the ranks. A morose soldier marching on the left turned his eyes on Bagration as he shouted with an expression that seemed to say, We know that ourselves. Another, without looking round, as though fearing to relax, shouted with mouth wide open and passed on. The order was given to halt and down knapsacks. Bagration rode round the ranks that had marched past him and dismounted. He gave the reins to a cussock, took off, and handed over his felt coat, stretched his legs, and set his cap straight. The head of the French column, with its officers leading, appeared from below the hill. Forward with God, said Bagration in a resolute, sonorous voice, turning for a moment to the front line, and slightly swinging his arms, he went forward uneasily over the rough field with the awkward gait of a cavalryman. Prince Andrew felt that an invisible power was leading him forward and experienced great happiness. The French were already near. Prince Andrew, walking beside Bagration, could clearly distinguish their bandoliers, red epaulets, and even their faces. He distinctly saw an old French officer who, with gaitered legs and turned-out toes, climbed the hill with difficulty. Prince Bagration gave no further orders and silently continued to walk out in front of the ranks. Suddenly, one shot after another rang out from the French. Smoke appeared all along their uneven ranks and musket shots sounded. Several of our men fell, among them the round-faced officer who had marched so gaily and complacently. But at the moment, the first report was heard. Bagration looked around and shouted, Hurrah! Hurrah! Rang a long, drawn shout-out from our ranks, and passing Bagration and racing one another, they rushed in an irregular but joyous and eager crowd down the hill at their disordered foe. End of chapter 18. All I've got to say at this point in time is that we finally get to the bloody portions of this war. Thankful for those bloody moments, you know? They reveal the metal of a person, okay? We get 
a purview look into Prince Bagration, his leadership style, his commanding style as he leads these troops after the French take the first shot upon them. We see a man who is so confident in his men that he just goes along, he trusts them to take initiative on their own. He's like, hey, very good. I really like that. Or one of my personal cynical outlooks on this situation is that this man has no business in a commanding role. Like many of the Russian nobility, they earned their spot through their wealth. And this dude is just like, yeah, that was good. You know, keep up the good work. Couldn't have done it better myself. And like these guys are like the tryhards, you know, in those group presentations that actually put forth the work. And then, you know, everybody else is like, yeah, I agree with that. You know, very good insights. Yeah. So it could either be that as well. But one thing that it's difficult to replicate if you don't know what you're doing is he's got an aura of charisma or something that make people want to follow him, even though he's a poor leader. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a term for that. Just can't think of it off the top of my head. But we see here how people's faces brighten up and they reached that like ragged group where there was that like old dude who it was noted he had a very pleasant smile. And I was just like, what? We're in war. Who has time for smiling? Anyway, this dude, you know, is sending his troops back to retreat. And upon seeing Bagration's attachment come forward, he calls his men back. And these men joyfully come back. And not only joyfully come back, they're so focused on the way that they walk. It's incredible. They let a cannonball fly over their head because they want so badly to impress this commanding officer. And when the cannonball lands and doesn't explode, they just form a semicircle around it. And it's just like, whoa, whoa. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me, you know, this type of warfare. But if it produces some bloody hands and some rallying battle cries, I love it. Like, you know, it's got the whole, like, Braveheart mentality to it. Like at the end, like Prince Bagration basically just pulls like a, I don't know what you want to call it, but he pulls like a no guts, no glory type of move at the very end of chapter 18, where he's just like, you know, he dismounts his horse. There's a massive French column coming at them. Another wave of the endless French army. We've got Napoleon's army to come after that. And he's just kind of like, no guts, you know, we're going to go forward. And he is able to successfully rally, motivate, and instill courage in the men behind him to continue fighting despite the losses that have been incurred upon their troops. That kind of leadership is what is needed in this book. Tolstoy uses Bagration as this excellent literary device of hope to make us all think, to trick us into believing that there is indeed hope for the survival of the Russian-Austrian army that is facing 
the endless French colonnade, okay? Like, let's not forget a couple chapters ago when they were basically sent to their death, and by the way, they had to book it to the location before the French so that they could make their stand. How Tolstoy is convincing masses of readers that this will not end in an absolute bloodbath on the Russian-Austrian side, and Prince Andrew will be laying gasping in the dirt and crying out to his dear wife, who she, he probably can't even remember because I can't remember her name. And he's just like, no. And like that's going to be the end of part two. And we're all just going to be like, wow. But in this moment, Tolstoy's excellent authorship has drawn us to this point where we're like, hey, maybe the, you know, 10,000 population Russian Austrian army can actually beat Napoleon's 150,000 plus troops that are coming on the prowl, you know? And so um, fascinated, fully engaged in this. If anybody says this is a boring book, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, this is an incredible book. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsin, Phil Olson. And as they say in the show business, that's all he wrote for now.